The following is from East Delta Baptist Church. For more information, visit us online at www.eastdeltabc.com. I found some things that as we prepare this morning that you, you'll never hear in church. Here's the first one. Hey, it's my turn to sit on the front pew, <laughs> as you can see. Uh, here's another one. I was so enthralled, I never noticed your sermon went 25 minutes over. <laughs> Or personally, I find witnessing much more enjoyable than golf. Uh, I love when we sing hymns that I've never heard before. (laughs) I hear more complaints about songs that we don't know. We didn't know any of them until we started singing, did we? So uh, since we're all here, let's just start worship early this morning. (laughs) Uh, And here's the best one. Pastor, we want to send you to a Bible seminar in the Bahamas. (laughs) Never heard that. I did have a lady want to send me to the Middle East one time when they were in war, so I'm not sure that was a good thing. Um, John chapter 5, and we're going to start down in verse, uh, let's go to about verse 9. Well, let's go to, yeah, uh, let's go to 8. And Jesus said to him, get up and pick up your mat and walk. And at once, this is verse 9, the the man was cured and he picked up his mat and he walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, this is the Sabbath and the law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, the man who made me well said to pick it up and walk. So they asked him, who is this fellow that told you to pick up your mat and walk? And the man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. And later Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. And the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jews persecuted him and Jesus said to them, My father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. Now, I want us to think about that last verse. Man, this whole thing will preach, won't it? I mean, think about what's happening here. There's a man that's, that's just been healed, and simply uh, he gets up, he starts to walk, and the, the Jews, the professionals in the law, said, you know, you shouldn't be carrying your mat because it says in the law not to work on the Sabbath day. And, and they were not concerned with a healing. They weren't concerned with a miracle. They was concerned more with keeping the law and every jot and tittle of the law. But when Jesus comes to them and he says to them, my father is always at work. And to this very day, I am too working. So this morning, if you want to think about the abundant life, I I want you to remember that one statement. My Father, God the Father, and Jesus Christ, He is always at work. The Bible says He never sleeps, He never slumbers, so He's always working. And in our lives, the lives of His children, God is always working. And and we started this idea of this series last week on living an abundant life, and we talked about three very important principles and these three principles of this, God has a, has a plan for your life. And, and I hope, you know, if you're a born-again Christian, and even if you've never accepted Christ, He has a plan for you. It says in the Bible, His plan is this, that no one would perish, but that everyone would come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. That's His first plan for us. Once we accept Jesus Christ as our personal Savior, His plan doesn't stop there. It's only beginning there. 
And in Jeremiah 29, 11, Jesus says, I know the plans I have for you, plans to bring you prosperity and not disaster, plans to bring about a future hope for you. That's what God is talking to us about through the prophet Jeremiah. He's got a hope for us, and our future hope is found in Jesus Christ. And God has a plan for your life. Here's the second thing we talked about last week, and these are kind of the foundation of the abundant life. There's a battle engaged for your life. We talked about that. Right now, Satan is having a battle for your life. Every day of your life, it's a battle, and Satan wants to come. And according to John 10.10, he comes only to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And when he see that word, and I don't have time to preach this right now, but when you see that kill, we, we think a lot of times about murder, and don't think about that so much in he's trying to murder me or trying to, to take my life. What he's trying to destroy is anything God is doing. He comes to steal anything God is doing. He's come to kill anything God is doing, and he's come to destroy anything God is doing in our life. But Christ says, I've come that you'd have life. And that not only would you have life, but you'd have it more abundantly. So we need to realize there's a, God has a plan, and within that plan, we need to realize Satan is battling, he's a, a battling against our life. And then the third thing we talked about, the last part of that foundation, is too often Christians are, are losing that battle. We're succumbing to the thief that comes to steal, kill, and destroy marriages and children and finances and life. All of those things seem to get in the way of our relationship with God, and, and that's a plan that Satan has, I think. In Matthew nine thirty six, we saw that Jesus saw the crowds. He had compassion on them because they were harassed, they were helpless, and they were like sheep without a shepherd. So Christ came, and he became that shepherd for us. He became that one that might lead us and might direct us. And we talked about four important questions, which are the foundation on this abundant life. And, and if you want to hear that and you weren't here last week, you can go to our, our internet and you can find that sermon. But here are the four questions. Who are you? What are you? Where are you? And what do you really want? And if we think about what do we really want, that's kind of what we're going to talk about this morning. A teacher asked the children in Sunday school class, uh, if I sold my house and my car and I had a big garage sale and I gave all the money to church, would that get me to heaven? No, the children all yelled. Well, if I cleaned the church every day, mowed the yard, kept everything neat and tidy, would I then get into heaven? Again, the answer shouted out was no. She started to feel pretty good about her teaching, and then she said, well, how can I get to heaven then? And one of the boys in the back room shouted, you got to die. <laughs> well, sometimes we miss that point. We come to life, and we think about life living and dying, and we, we don't realize in between living and dying, or in between being born and, and dying, there's a life that has to be lived. And, and that life we have to live, Christ says we don't want to simply come to earth and live a life. He wants us to live an abundant life. He wants us to live a life of joy. And, and I'm not saying there's not ups and downs in life, and I'm not saying that we're going to walk around and it's going to be a rose garden, and every day we're just going to be floating around. Not at all. There's, there's things in life that, that are going to make us fall and get us down. But, but overall, as we look back over our life, Christ says, you know, I've come. And even in those tough times, you're growing spiritually. Even in those tough times, you're learning. And, and even in those tough times, I want you to find a, a lesson in abundance in life. 
So I want to share with you the next two steps. The first step was that, that ideal of, of who am I and, and, wh- and what are we and where are we going and what do we really want. So here's the second step. If you want to move into the abundance life, you've got to own it. Well, that's kind of a, a little bit of a new term. You've, you've kind of got to own it. You've got to own it, life. And, and what, it, what I mean, own what? Or, or, or own what? I don't, I don't get that. You've got to own you. Now, what I want you to think about, have you ever noticed that often when we experience some kind of failure in life, when we experience something that, that, that happens, a lot of times it's somebody else's fault. And I've mentioned this a lot of times. It's, 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 it's not really my pain or my failure or my hardship. It's because of someone else. It's because of something else happened. If, if my behavior is bad, it's because uh, I, you didn't do enough to, to, to treat, teach me right. If, if, if things are, are messing up, then, then it's really truly not my fault. And, and I, I found some things that I found this amazing. A Boston court acquitted a man, Michael Tyndall, of, of flying illegal drugs into the United States Tyndall's attorneys argued, argued, but I don't realize how much I say that word and still y'all started criticizing me, some of y'all, start, uh, argued that he was a victim of action addict syndrome. Action addict syndrome. They titled this as an emotional disorder that makes a person crave dangerous, thrilling situations. That he wasn't a drug dealer at all. He was merely a thrill seeker. They let him go. You know, it wasn't his fault. Y'all remember the affluent, what was it called? The affluent whatever that was drunk driving and affluenza. affluenza I thought affluenza was something you caught was a respiratory disease. but, But what did they say? Well, it's not his fault. It was, he's a victim of the way he was brought up. I mean, that's, that's, that's not owning it. Here's another one. Or, an organ man tried to kill his ex-wife. He was acquitted on the grounds that he suffered from depression suicide syndrome, whose victims deliberately commit poorly planned crimes with the unconscious goal of being caught or killed. He really didn't want to shoot his wife. He really wanted the police to shoot him. He was acquitted of that. It wasn't his fault. It was, it was a syndrome that he, that he had or that his lawyers came up with. Here's a great one, the Twinkie syndrome. Attorneys for Dan White, who murdered San Francisco Mayor George Moscon, he blamed the crime on an emotional distress linked to food, binge, food, junk food binges. He had junk food binges, and, and he was acquitted of murder. He was convicted of a lesser charge of manslaughter, but he was acquitted of murder because he had the t- Twinkie syndrome. Now, I didn't make those up. Those are true. So, so I want us to think about that. Nowadays, it's really nobody's fault when, when it comes to our failures, and, and maybe you've even said this before, or oh, that's just how I was raised, or, or that's the hand that was dealt to me, or you may even use this when God... He created me that way. I really can't help that. So, so where did all of this start? This is a question for you. Where did, those, where did those excuses start? They started at the Garden of Eden, didn't they? You remember when the Adam and Eve sinned? If you remember that little exchange of conversation as God came to Adam and Eve and, and uh, he went to Adam and he said, Adam, what have you done? Now, I'm loosely translating this. And Adam said, well, God, it was the woman you gave me. So, so God went to Eve and said, Eve, what have you done? 
And she said, the serpent beguiled me that you made. What do they do? Adam said, well, God, it's your fault. You made the woman. And the woman said, well, God, it's your fault. You made the serpent. That's where it started, way back in the Garden of Eden. So it's nothing new. It's not something in 1980 some lawyer came up with. It's, it's been on and on and on for ages. Don't take responsibility. Surely it's someone else's fault. Now, I don't want us to lose focus of what I'm talking about this morning. We're talking about having the abundant life. And I think for us to get to that point... When we say we want to own it, we want to own our life, it, it comes to taking responsibility for our own life. It means we need to wake up and start realizing where I am is because of decisions that I've made. And when we think about that, now, now don't misunderstand me. I know other people's sins and other people's uh, actions sometimes, they, they affect how we respond and they affect what we do. And we may be get put in some situations that were beyond our control because of someone else's actions. Actions. But we know what? We have to move on past that. We have to own it and say, okay, this happened to me and I'm in this situation, but, but I'm going to own it and I'm going to move on past this. So when we think about that, I, we need to understand that, that I'm responsible for me. We're responsible for ourselves. Now, we may be responsible for our children growing up and for providing for a family, but, but when it comes to me and God, we're responsible for ourselves. So that's what I want us to think about. I'm responsible for me, and we also need to understand when we stand before God, only we will stand before God. No one will be with us. There will not be an excuse. There won't be a, a Twinkie reason that we can say, well, God, these Twinkies got a hold of me, and you know, I couldn't do anything about it. We're going to stand before God. We're going to give an answer. Now, back in John chapter 5, we read the second part of this. I want to read the first part of it now. And, and thinking about this, here's what we need to understand. Hear this. God is on your side. Isn't that great? God's on your side. He's not against you. Satan would have us believe that God's against us, that he's a judge that's sitting up here waiting to throw down punishments on. That's not our God. He's a loving God, and he's on our side, and he loves you, and he, he wants the best for you, and, and it takes some actions on our part. Now, let's look at John chapter 5. Let's look at 1 through 8. Later on, this is following uh, something that happens. Uh, Jesus fulfilled, uh, 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 healed an official son, and he's moving on. So that later on, it's talking about from what had happened b- before, there was a festival of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Near the Sheep Gate in Jerusalem, there's a pool called Bethesda in Hebrew. There were five colonies there under these large number, and under these colonies there, there was a large number of sick people. They were laying, they were blind, they were lame, or they were paralyzed, and they were waiting for movement of the water. For certain times of the year, an angel would come, or for certain times, an angel of the Lord would come down to the pool and would stir the water. And the first one who stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease they had. And one particular man was there who had been ill for 38 years. For 38 years. And Jesus saw him lying there. And I want you to think about this. This guy has been, has been ill for 38 years. And Jesus sees him there. And Jesus knew that he had already been there for a long time. And he said to him, Do you want to get well? Now, I want, you to sink, I want you to let that sink in. We're going to talk more about that. And the sick man answered, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool where the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get there, someone else steps down ahead of me. 
And Jesus said to him, stand up, pick up your mat, and walk. Here we see Jesus. He's standing there in Jerusalem by this pool of Bethesda. He looks down. There's been a man sick there for 38 years. And Jesus asked a simple, simple question. He asked him this, do you want to get well? Let's just say, and I just made this up, let's just say that he had been ill since birth, and that would make him 38 years old. And let's just say that since he was 18, or, or that's, 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 you know, a pretty good number, 18, you become, you become grown pretty much at that point. Well, you think you're grown anyway. For, for, for 20 years, he's had this condition, and he's been old enough to realize that, that he's had this condition. Probably more like 16 or maybe even 14 would be, would be more. And, and he's had this illness he's been dealing with for that long, 20-plus years. Now, it says 38 years, so he's been dealing with it 38 years. But let's just say he was born with it, so he went, you know, one, two, three, four, five, all those years when he really wasn't old enough to help himself. But... but we know for a long time he's been able to help himself for, for a great number of years, even if you start at 16 or 18 years old. And Jesus looks at him and he says, do you want to get well? Notice the first thing he does. He says, I've got excuses, God. I, I want to get well, but every time I try, somebody steps in front of me. Every time I try, somebody beats me to the water. You know, yeah, that's what I want, but... But listen, somebody else is doing things that's keeping me from getting well. God, it's really not my fault. Of course I want to be well. And when I read that question, I've read it so many times, I'm, I'm like, how, how silly a question is that? How silly is a question to ask somebody that's been lame or been crippled or whatever his problem was for 38 years, do you want to get well? Well, if we ask that today, well, somebody will say, well, you're crazy. You're out of your mind. Of course I want to get well. And, and that's what this man said. And, and I thought about this. He's been living less than, he, than his potential. And, and he has an opportunity. He's been surviving. He hasn't been thriving. And Christ comes and, and says, hey, I want to make you well. And, and he starts giving God these excuses. And you know, the only person that can keep you from being where God wants you to be is you. You're the only barrier between where God wants you and what God has for you and what God desires for you is your own self. And, and that's what we see in this man. It was his own self. So, you know, it's, it's the, the, the concept of this kind of interesting. When we want to be made here, when we want to be where God wants us, it takes some rubber hitting the road. In other words, when we talk about change... Change is something positive, and, and we're, we're moving into my second point this morning. Uh, we need to embrace positive change. Now, I want to key on that word positive. When, when Jesus asked a man, do you want to be well? Do you want to be made well? I, I, think, I think he came and he, he said, of course I want to be well, but he, he simply said, God, I want you to make me well. Now, I want us to think about that just a moment. We talked about this a little bit last week. If we want something and we pray to God for something and we know it's in God's will and it's God's desire, we have to put some action behind it. We have to put the, the rubber on the road, so to speak, and we need to move forward. If you think about what Jesus told this man, what did he say? He said, get up and walk. Put some action behind what you want. Get up and, and start moving. Well, we know God healed that man. But listen, it took some action on that victim's part. And I think if we... If we take a, our whole life and we think about we're the victim or, or we're, it's someone else's fault, if we don't own it, 
then, then we're not ever going to come to that point of saying, God, I want to be made well, and not only do I want to be made well, I'm going to put some action behind it. Now, here's the problem with action. It takes commitment. That's hard, isn't it? Isn't commitment hard? But then it takes discipline. That's harder than commitment, isn't it? I mean, think about it. It takes a commitment first, and then it takes discipline. Man, discipline is tough. Discipline, when we start thinking about eating right, I mean, that's kind of been on my mind, and, and that takes discipline. And, and, you know, you look down, and there's a banana split, and you think, I'm not going to eat that. I'm committed to this. What's the next step? It's discipline. It's something that we have to do. And then here's the last thing. It may be the hardest of all. We can think about commitment, discipline, but it takes energy. I mean, it takes energy to keep it up, to keep moving, to keep going and, and realizing that, that if we want to be made well, yes, we can come to God. We can say, God, this is what I want. That was our last question last week. God, this is what I want and this is where I want to be. Then it takes commitment. It takes discipline and it takes some energy to, energy to shift ourselves into there. Here's the thing we need to understand. Sometimes being a victim gets us attention. Sometimes if we're the victim, people pay attention to us. They show they care for us. They, they, they begin to, to give us sympathy, and people begin to feed on that. And, and sometimes we need to realize we need to move out of that. And we don't need to wallow in that pit of others, uh, uh, their attention. And we need to put some feet to what we want, and we, start needing to, we need to start moving out. In Luke chapter 15, <coughs> if you want to turn over there, we're going to be over our just a moment, Luke chapter 15. I haven't got that marked, so it's going to take me just a minute. You may remember this story. It's about the prodigal son. And in Luke chapter 15, we're going to be, I think, all the way down in verse 17. It's kind of where we're going to, we're going to look at that passage of Scripture. This is a parable, Jesus talking about the prodigal son. If you remember that parable, what happens? You know, the son comes to the father, and he says, Hey, Pop, I want, I want my inheritance. I've got a brother over here, but split my stuff in half. I want to go out and I want to live the good life. I want to go out. I want to, I want to do all these things. I want, to, I want to live the life of luxury, and I want, to, I want my inheritance. I want to move. I want to go. I want to do all these things. Well, if you read that story there in Luke chapter 15, you know after a few years it, it fails. He's out of money. He doesn't have any way to move forward. He, he finds himself eating hog food. If you ever had a hog, and we've got a big old hog named Tater that's been, he's about seven years old. He should have died years ago. He's got to have heart trouble. He's about that tall and about that thick and about six feet long, and all he does is eat and sleep. I mean, literally, that's all he does. And, and we take him slop. And the kids, not that Denise's food is slop, but they eat up here on Wednesday nights, and the slop that's left... We take Tater, that slop, and you know what he does? He'll lay down and rub his head all in it, you know. And we had a birthday cake up here one time somebody brought, and it was half a cake of pink and blue and icing, and he rubbed his head in it, and he stood up, and there was icing just all over. And then he just went to slopping down that food. When you look at this picture, that's where the son found himself. He's rooting the hog out, saying, hey, I I want some of that slop. I want some of that cake. I mean, he may have scraped it off and ate some right there. You don't ever know, but he found himself doing that. Now, what are we talking about? Don't lose focus. We're talking about putting feet behind our desires. Look at what verse 17, it says in Luke chapter 15. He came to his senses. 
That's the first step to change. He came to his senses and he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread to eat? And here I am, dying with hunger. I want us to think about living the abundant life. There comes a point in our life that we need to own it. And we need to come to our senses. And we need to realize that, hey, here it is. And and I want you to hear this statement. If you're writing anything down, write this statement down. We change when the pain of remaining the same outweighs the pain of change. Did you hear that? We change when the pain of remaining the same outweighs the pain of change. See, this, this young man, he, he realized the pain of remaining the same, it doesn't compare with being a slave at my father's house. The pain of remaining the same, it doesn't compare with swallowing my pride and saying, hey, Dad, I messed up. Hey, I need to come back and, I, and just make me one of your servants. That pain of remaining the same, when it begins to outweigh the pain of change, that's the, that's the time that we start taking those positive change. Now, now I know that, that we can think about the Father's house, and we can think about this parable, and we can say, well, I'm not really in that situation. But, but what we need to be where God wants us to be in the abundant life, we need positive change. This, this younger son, his, his, in this parable, he could have decided to become a thief, couldn't he? He could have decided, you know what, I'm, I'm eating with the hogs. I'm, I'm, I'm slopping myself with the hogs. I'm broke. I'm, I don't have anything, and, and I need some change, so I'm going to start stealing for a living. I'm going to start doing something. That's not positive change, and that's why I said we need to think about positive change. I want you to notice what happened, and this is where we're going to close this morning. When he made positive change, look at verse 18. He came to his senses. He said, here I am, starving to death, eating with the hogs. But he came to his senses and said, I'll get up and I'll go to my father. And I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven. I have sinned in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, but make me simply one of your hired men. Simply make me a slave. Simply let me come and, and live with your hired men and work in your fields and do your work. And, and I want you to understand, this is a parable. This is a story that, that has a different meaning. And the meaning is, when we come to our senses and say, you know what, Father, I've sinned, and I realize I've sinned, and, and I realize I need some positive change, and, and I realize I'm not living the life that you desire for me, and I'm not living the abundant life, then we need to go to the Father and, and say, you know what, I've sinned against you, and I've sinned against heaven, and I've sinned against your sight. And as he confessed that, and he said, I, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, I want you to notice what happened, and we're not going to read all this. You can read through there, but at that point, the blessings begin. Do you hear that? At that very point, the blessings begin, because what happened? The father said, go get a robe for him, a fine robe from, from the king's house, and, and go get a ring for him. That ring signified that he was part of the father's house. He wasn't a hired man. He wasn't somebody that simply was there as a slave. He was part of the father's house. So immediately the blessings came and, and he was put in a robe and he was given that ring signifying that he was part of the father's house. And the father said, and go take the fatted calf and, and we're going to slaughter and we're going to have a feast. I love this because he said this, my son who was lost, he's come back home. 
He's, he's back to us and, and that picture of the father looking and seeing him coming down the road and, and stretching his arms out and saying, my son who was lost has come back home and here he is, he's part of my family. If we want to live the abundant life, I think we need to understand that, that we have to own ourselves. We have to own this life. We have to at some point come to our senses and say, you know, if I'm not living the abundant life God wants for me, I need to do some self-examination and I need to not only own it, I need to, to have some positive change. And we start making those positive change and we come to the Father immediately. The blessings begin. I want to ask you to think about this as we close. Are you living the abundant life? Let's pray together. Father, I pray this morning. As we think about your word and we know the truth of your word, we know, Father, that, that what, you saying is, what you say is real. We know that Satan comes to kill, to steal, and to destroy, to, to take a life that, that you have called and you have saved and, and start tearing it apart, start tearing it down. But you've come that we would have an abundant life. We wouldn't survive this life, but we would thrive in this life. You know the plans you have for us, plans to prosper, plans not to harm, and plans not for failure, but you have plans for us. Father, I pray today as we just examine ourselves, we would own who we are. And Father, if we find those areas of our life, and we only find them through your Holy Spirit, that we need to surrender to you, Father, I pray today. That we would come to the Father and we'd say, you know, I'm not living abundant life. I don't, I'm not sure what all's happened, but, but God, I, I want to have the joy that only you can bring. I want to have the excitement that only I can find in you. I want to live that abundant life. Won't you know the Father has his arms outstretched, and he's ready to say, this child of mine who was going down the wrong road. You know, that son never ceased being the Father's son, did he? If you're a born-again Christian, if you've accepted Christ as your personal Savior, you, you've not ceased being the Father's child. But you may have went off in the, in the world a little while, and when you're ready to come home, here's the Father saying, I'm calling you, I'm wooing you, I'm moving you towards me. And he waits with outstretched arms to welcome you home. Father, this morning as we think about those things, I pray, Lord, that you would direct us not through emotions, not through a foolish blabber of a guy up here talking, but, Father, through your Holy Spirit. We would hear, we would know, we would respond to you. Lord, now as we have an invitation, I pray, Lord, that we would surrender our all to you, that Satan would be put in his place, and we would know where we truly find abundant life in you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.